regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everyone, welcome to uh, another interview with Datacast. Today I have the pleasure to be on a call with Pana Dinakaran. Pana is currently the Chief Product Officer at Arizia AI, a startup focused on machine learning observability. She was previously a machine learning engineer at Uber, Apple, and TubeMogul. During her time at Uber, she built a number of core ML infrastructure platforms, including Michelangelo. She has a bachelor from Berkeley ESS program, where she published research with Berkeley AI Research Group. And now she's on leave up in Epson from the Computer Vision PhD program at Cornell. So Pana, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Thanks so much for inviting me. By way of introduction, as mentioned briefly, you complete your bachelor in electrical engineering and computer science at UC Berkeley. What was it about this subject that captured your interest and what were some of your favorite undergrad courses taken at Berkeley? Good question. So I originally went through electrical engineering and computer science because I really liked math. And so I was looking for applications of math that would be interesting majors. So Berkeley ECS, you know, combines you know, electrical engineering and computer science. And, you know, you eventually find a focus area of where you ultimately want to focus down. So I think I actually did a pretty even split between electrical engineering and computer science, but I got really interested in the machine learning courses at Berkeley. So CS189, there was a lot of EE courses that were focusing on, you know, statistical methods that were pretty interesting, including, you know, 126, EE127. I think, you know, all of the machine learning courses were starting to pick up an interest. I was working on research projects that were focused on machine learning. So, you know, Berkeley kind of exposed me to the growing interest in AI and all the applications that you can build using AI. Thanks for sharing that. As well as my research during your time at Berkeley, you also got involved quite a bit in a variety of research activity with different professors from sustainable technologies lab to represent lab to some of the hybrid system lab. Could you mind quickly go over some of that research experience during your undergrad? Cal has, you know, research professors who are working on different projects. You can typically get involved as an undergrad. Sometimes they have applications. Sometimes you can just go walk up to the professor and say, hey, I think the research that you're working on is really exciting. Is there any way that I can help or contribute? And sometimes their grad students will take you on as an undergrad researcher. So the first professor I actually worked with was Alice Agagino. She heads up the best lab at Berkeley. And we were working on this lighting system on a smart grid. So how do you optimally place these lighting sensors so that you can use them to replicate kind of you know smart optimization of where you should place sensors on a grid? And so we were working on kind of machine learning algorithms even in 2013 for how you can apply these to the smart grid. And I actually really enjoyed that entire process of working with the research team. We published a couple of papers. It was a little bit of a hardware implementation as well as a software implementation for that project because Alice Agagino is actually a mechanical engineering professor. 
So we spent a lot of time kind of working on how do we take this hardware implementation, figure out optimal ways so that you can get you know the most lighting optimization in the project we're working on. So we ended up publishing a couple of papers, and that was my first experience kind of getting involved with a research project at Cal. Thanks for going over some of that early experience and exposure to research in your undergrad career. And I believe that, you know, besides engaging in research, you also got a chance to work on a couple of uh, internship experience during your time at college. And in particular, you spent one summer at TUF Mogov developing uh, clickbot detection algorithms for ad campaigns and another summer at Apple on the Emerging Technologies team. So yeah, what were some of the valuable lessons you learned from this internship? Yeah, so I actually think I spent, you know, a good mix of doing research and real world internship experience. You know, a lot of the times in research you're working on, not necessarily how do you take something to production? You're working on building this proof of concept, really. How does it work? How could you explain how it works? Can you prove theoretically that this could be faster or more optimal? But in the real world, the data is a lot messier. The implementation, you know, you have to think about things like cost of implementation, you know, how simple it is for other people to use your code and really kind of real world applications are a lot, you know, taken to other considerations that you might not think about when you're in the research world. So during my summer at TubeMogul, um, we were working on these ClickBot detection algorithms for, for ad campaigns, you know, trying to figure out which of the clicks were actually from these bots and which of them were from actual humans. And so It was a really cool experience because first time kind of working with production systems, it was still a little bit research focused. We were using things like TSNE for dimensionality reduction, trying to understand, you know, what are these common attributes to identify which of the clicks are bots and which of the clicks are humans. And, you know, we spent a lot of time over the summer iterating on different algorithms, different approaches. And then by the end of the summer, we actually deployed that into production and You know, building the algorithm maybe took a month, maybe a month and a half of my internship. But the other half of that time was mostly spent putting that into production. And so it was kind of your first real experience, or at least my first real experience of, you know, most of your time isn't really spent just building the model or building the algorithm. You have to think about how can you actually put that into the real world and implement that so it's scalable And, you know, it's, a, it's something that I think when you're working in the research environment, you're not always thinking about. So, for example, you know, one of an, another research project I worked on at Berkeley was through the hybrid systems lab headed by Claire Talmud. And in that project, what we were working on was, you know, can we build this framework to guarantee that, you know, multiple vehicles, we could avoid collision between multiple vehicles. And we spent a lot of time in that research project, you know, looking at, different papers and algorithms and trying to look at approaches. And, you know, we had all these, you know, statistical approaches for, you know, how likely is something going to collide? You know, when is it not going to collide? But the thing about research is you have to prove it. You have to prove that things won't collide. And so, you know, in the real world, you're okay. And, you know, I would say most people are okay thinking about things like, what is the likelihood of these things happening. But in research, the, the goal is really to kind of show proof and show mathematical guarantees that XYZ thing won't happen. And so I think that was the main difference kind of going between research and internships is one is focused on, you know, the paper or the research, you know, proofs being the output. And then the other one, it's about 
how do you actually get this thing that you've built into the hands of people and customers in the real world? So it's a little bit of like different hats that you have to wear going going between the two. It seems that you really enjoy industrial experience and enjoy you know making things that that is useful for the real world. Right after finish your undergrad at Berkeley, you joined Uber as a software engineer on the marketplace forecasting team, and more specifically, you led the development of Uber's first model lifecycle management system for running the ML models computation scale to power Uber's dynamic pricing algorithms. What were some of the concrete engineering challenge that you encountered during the design of the system? That's a good question. So after I graduated, I was debating about whether or not to go more toward a PhD program. Or join industry. I thought I would give it a couple of years, you know, go work in industry maybe before I decided to go back to academia. And Uber was an incredible place to work right after you graduate. You know, I would recommend this to anybody who, you know, is is maybe just starting off their career. Instead of going to a place where, you know, and, and this is my personal experience, so it could be different for different people, but. You know the difference between going to a Google versus maybe something more of an Uber, is that you know an Uber or Facebook, you're working on sort of these. Most of the systems I would say have already been built, and so you're working on either optimizations for new systems or trying to keep them running, versus joining maybe a mid-stage startup, something where it's it's not super early, but it's still big enough where. Everything that you work on will end up being used. Everything that you work on, you know, is is going to be launched and put into production, is a really valuable experience. And so, when I joined Uber, I joined the Marketplace Org, and at first I was working on, you know, a couple of the different teams, more on some of the core ML product teams, you could call them. So, how do you apply machine learning into the products that Uber was deploying? And You know, ultimately, I ended up joining this team where they were launching this new platform called MLMS at Uber, and it was, if you've heard of a model store, it's the platform that actually holds all of the models that are, you know, fetched from the model store to then be served and deployed into production. So we had, you know, finance models in that platform, eats models in the platform, you know, marketplace models in that platform. You know, one of the things that make the design of a system like that complex is that all of these different models—you have different model types. So some of them are you know, neural networks, some of them are regression models, some of them are you know, gradient-boosted trees. So you have all of these different types of models. So when you store the model, how do you keep things like the hyperparameters, where the training data came from, the different structures of the models, and you have to build this general framework. That can handle all of the different variety of models, and the different variety of ways that people are serving those models. And I think that's something that is pretty complex because somebody might not even have hyperparameters. They might be deploying their platform in a simple microservice, and then another team might be deploying their model on Michelangelo, and they're using you know PySpark-based models. And so, having this general you know design. That captured all of the different variety and complexity was, I think, you know, what we spent a lot of upfront time doing, really gathering the requirements and how complex can the ecosystem really be. And then once we started actually building, you know, I think the main challenges were just, you know, how do you make this scale to, to Uber scale? Every year we're kind of onboarding more and more rides, more and more models. So how do you make sure that you know all of the 
you know, SLAs and the, and the scale of what your system was, was built to do can actually withhold the, the growing scale. So th- that was probably the, the two main pieces, the upfront design to handle the complexity and then the ongoing work to kind of handle the scale of Uber. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you talking about the importance of growth and uh, joining a company where, you know, experience yeah, that momentum. And it seems like just being a part of that journey, you also pick up a lot of engineering skills to meet some of the challenges along the way. I believe that from that experience, as you already mentioned, building that model lifecycle management system support a variety of use cases, that, that model store, the concept that you mentioned. You also start become more interested in this concept of model monitoring. So can you review sort of any specific pain points that spark such interest? Yeah. So the interesting thing about working in marketplace was, you know, there are these people called data scientists. You probably, you know, they're the people who actually build the models. And then there were engineers who would actually put the model into production. Sometimes, you know, in some teams, it was the data scientists who would do both. But sometimes, you know, in most teams, it was kind of data scientists builds, engineers will actually help productionalize that model. And what happens is that once the model actually goes into production, you know, inevitably you start noticing, I think what happened was, you know, we'd always noticed that there were issues. It was a very dynamic marketplace. You know, you have drivers on one side who are trying to get rides, and then you have riders on the other side, you know, calling those rides. And so you get all of this kind of real-time feedback about your models. And so what you can do is you can get product metrics about, hey, you launched a new model, maybe your cancellations are going down, or maybe your ETAs are starting to become really high. And so you spend a lot of time trying to troubleshoot, why did this happen? What's happening? You know, sometimes people from leadership could come in and say, hey, I'm noticing an issue in Chicago. You know, why is this happening? Can you guys go take a look at it? And a lot of that work of trying to go debug and troubleshoot what was going on was very manual. You know, you would spend a lot of time you know, pulling up dashboards or looking at, you know, one-off scripts. Data scientists would pull things from, you know, production systems to try to understand what's actually going on. What's the issue? When was the last time we retrained the model? Did we launch a new model or a new data pipeline that could be impacting this specific model? And it was like almost every couple of weeks, something new would happen. Something new, we'd have to go figure out what's actually happening. And a lot of it was very, very manual. And I think that's what initially sparked my interest mm-hmm. is there's got to be a better way to deploy models. You, know, you think about software systems, software systems, you have tools like Datadog, you have tools like PagerDuty, something, you know, as part of building code, you know, software, you're writing all of these tests, you're writing all of these alerts, and you have monitors so that you can look at, hey, it looks like I'm getting a lot of error messages. Let me go look in. You get alerted, you can go in, you know exactly what you should do if you have a runbook to go fix those things. Nothing like that exists for machine learning. Machine learning is still very much this, I'd call it more of a research still discipline. Some researchers or data scientists will build the models, somebody else will productionalize them, but it's not this you know, very well-oiled machine the way that software engineering is. Software engineering, there's best practices. Machine learning, I think we're still trying to figure out and people are still working through how do you build a good ML engineering system at your company so that you have all of these insights into the model and you can actually figure out when things are going wrong 
and when to actually improve those models. Does that make sense? The kind of why is it difficult to actually get any insights at all about what's going on in the model in production? Yeah, absolutely. You already mentioned that probably the nature of ML models make it hard to for us to predict the outcome. And, yep. and you mentioned like considering it is still very uh, much a result of a research lab. It's not a nice way to deploy and insert models. And so naturally, as a result of that, you know, so there's not a standard way to, to monitor this result as well. And all yep. the pain points that you mentioned about having manual work on dashboard and script, totally, uh, I think a lot of people who are practitioners can appreciate that as well. Really, that, yep. And it's funny because you'll you'll talk to another practitioner and I feel like everyone always has this horror story of, ah, that one time we didn't catch that. And, you know, we, it was, we were running blind to that issue for months and they didn't even know. And it's almost like everyone has this, like one or two of these stories in their back pocket if you're a practitioner. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I got interested in model monitoring and, you know, really ML observability, it's how do you make the process of actually putting models into production successful? You know, the same way you think about releasing code into production, having all of that visibility so you actually know when something is, is going wrong and you can improve it. Yes, yeah, certainly. And then we will talk about the concept of model observability a little bit later on in our conversation. But before that, I want to kind of briefly touch on to another phase of your career, which is so, so after spending three years at Uber, you decided to join a PhD program in, in computer vision at Cornell University and specifically about bias in models. So why, why did you choose to go back to uh, academia at that time? I think a part of it was I had applied to Cornell a while ago. Mm-hmm. They had given me an offer and I wanted to at least try it try to understand, hey, you know, I really enjoyed doing research. I wanted to give it a shot and see if I can go through and, and get my PhD. I had worked for a couple of years, so I thought that, you know, it would be a good time to transition back into academia. I think another push for it was during my time working in Berkeley, you know, the last research team I was working on was, you know, a lot of focus on robots. Uber ATG was really kind of self-driving cars. And I thought that the main, you know, core issue of why there weren't more robots or more, you know, intelligent automated devices was because of computer vision. You know, I thought that that was one of the hardest challenges that was left in AI is not only how can you see, but how can you perceive the world? You know, computer vision systems can see, okay, that's a sofa, you know, maybe that's two pillows on the sofa, but can they use the context of a situation to say, you know, oh, you know, this is the office room sofa. This is, you know, like there's all of this understanding that we as humans have. That's a really bad example. But because I'm looking at my sofa in my office room. <laughs> but, um, you know, you, as humans, you have a lot of these, you know, contextual clues and you can help understand a scenario that we're still not there in terms of computer vision in applications. And so I, I thought that was kind of the big frontier that we still had to you know, learn a lot about and improve on. So that's why I decided to join the PhD program and work in a really exciting space like computer vision. I joined Cornell. I was working under Serge Bologna, who's actually also a Cal alumni. He also did his PhD at Berkeley. And you know, I was at Cornell very, very briefly. I started on my PhD and especially in computer vision, I think there's a lot more interest in the space about how do you make sure your models aren't discriminatory, aren't biased, 
And Cornell, I thought, had a really good AI ethics program. You know, incredible people like Rediet Abebe, for example, is an alumni of that program. And, you know, they do a really good job of, you know, trying to ask those questions while you're even doing research so that you can ask, hey, you know, how fair are my models? How biased are my models? And I, I was really, really interested in that. I thought, you know, we already live in a society that is not equal. You know, more people, you, know, you think about even the type of people who go into PhD programs. They don't typically look like me. They don't typically look like, you know, ready yet. Um, and so you already have all of these, you know, inherent systemic inequalities. You then have, you know, the data and the historical data that people are using to build these models is already biased. And so, you know, are we going to end up building these models that continue to propagate the systems of inequality that already exist in our world? Mm -hmm. And that felt like a really big problem to me, that we didn't have any ways of checking that. You know, nobody knew if you're, you know, a credit card company and you're doing, you know, credit cards to people or you're issuing loans to people, you know, why are you rejecting some people versus other people? You know, do you know if it's because of a biased issue or, you know, you know, models, even if you don't include things like your race or gender into the model, things like your zip code or your most recent transactions, that's latent information that the model can use to learn, you know, what is your gender? What is your race? And at least come up with a probability of what you might be. And it felt like a really big problem. It is a really big problem, right? I mean, you have no idea what these models are doing. And for all you know, they could be making these really important decisions about hiring and giving out, you know, financial, you know, opening up financial opportunities, but only if you meet these other certain qualifications. So that, I couldn't stop thinking about that, <laughs> yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're very passionate about this type of research. And uh, just out of curiosity, like what are some of the researchers or a research group that are doing fantastic output on uh, model biases and modernists that you are paying attention at the moment? Yeah. I think, you know, people that we should definitely keep an eye on. The research group at Cornell, I thought was incredible. There's Solon Barocas at Cornell. Manish Raghavan's an upcoming PhD student who's been publishing a lot of really good works in this space. Radiat Ababe is, of course, now a professor at UC Berkeley. So she's also doing really good research in this space. You know, Timnit was someone, you know, there's the whole issue of kind of what happened at Google with really kind of unfortunate situation for Timnit, you know, that that, that happened. But she was doing incredible work in the space as well. So I think those are incredible people to follow. And there's other organizations now as well. The Partnership in AI is is a group that's, you know, in doing interesting work. Kate Crawford is another person to keep an eye on. So I think that this space is going to only kind of get bigger. And I think a lot of PhD programs now actually have, you can focus on the specific area, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing those resources. I'll be sure to put all, all the links into the show notes so anyone interested can, can check out that group and, and those other researchers that you uh, provided. So you mentioned you spent some brief period at Cornell during your PhD program. And one of the reasons for that is you decided to start, I guess, a new project called Monitor ML with your brother. You guys have even a lunch on product hunt that I got a chance to take a look. And, you know, uh, it also go to the um, 2019 Summer Bastard Black Combinator. Can you, um, 
I guess like share a little bit about the anecdote behind this career transition and also some of the valuable lessons you learned going through YC. Absolutely. So originally, so what happened was I, I was in Cornell and I was really interested in, if you think about sort of where my thought process was at, I was thinking we have no way of knowing if these models are biased. Mm-hmm. But, you know, before that even, it's we have no way of really getting any insights or visibility into the models at all. So forget about, you know, even fairness. You can't even ask a simple question like, hey, is this working? How is this performing? You know, those are the simple questions you should be able to answer before you can go answer complex questions like, is this bias? Is this, how is this behaving on this specific group of people? I think the day before the YC application was going to close, I saw, you know, a LinkedIn ad saying, hey, apply to this batch of YC. And I thought, okay, it would be interesting to just apply, see if, you know, this idea of how do I better monitor and get observability about machine learning could be this product that we could build. And so I put together an application, you know, my brother at that time, he had been listening to kind of what I was doing and what I was researching this whole time. So when I was telling him, I'm going to put this application together, he was like, I'll totally join, you know, we'll join, we can, we can build this. And so we put in an application and we actually ended up getting into YC. And that experience of going through YC was, you know, I would recommend it to any first time founder ever. It kind of goes through, especially as someone with a technical background, what are the, I I would kind of call it like a three day MBA, you know, not a three day, three month MBA program, but hands-on experience of doing versus you know, just reading about what other people did. And it's a focus on specifically tech, right? So we would go through and t- you know, learn about all of these other you know, tech startups and you know, what they looked like back when they were doing YC. You know, what did they focus on? What were the metrics that they decided to optimize for? How do you build and launch products very quickly and try to get usage and traction? And that platform of YC, you know, having that group of ex-founders who are constantly advising, as well as current founders who you have to kind of go through the experience with was incredible experience. I'd say if you're interested in building a startup at all, go through YC. It's an incredible experience. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. In earlier 2020, that project, Monitor ML, got acquired by a company called Arise AI. And as a result, you became Arise co-founder and chief product officer. Maybe can, can you share a little bit about like some of the backstory behind this acquisition and, and kind of the focus that you've been working on at Arise? You know, around that time, I met my co-founder, my current co-founder, Jason. He was also faced a lot of the same pain points about not knowing if models are working as expected, not knowing if what you've actually put into production is going to work the same as what you saw in research environment. Actually, you know, I worked at his previous company, TubeMogul. So he had previously founded TubeMogul and taken that from garage to IPO, really incredible founder. And so the two of us kind of met up to, to catch up and we were both thinking about the space, both working in the same space. And, you know, at first I thought it would be interesting to, to team up. And, you know, I think the more and more we just spent time kind of catching up and talking about the space and how we were both coming at the space, we noticed that there was a lot of similarities. And, you know, it would be kind of 
joining the best of both of our experiences to join up together. We ended up kind of having Monitor ML be acquired by Rise AI. And so we, we ended up teaming up. It's kind of been a crazy experience, actually, I guess, <laughs> going from doing that YC, teaming up. And now we have kind of a full team of folks working on ML observability at Arise. And for me, the main rationale was finding a co-founder that was just really incredible. Like I, I felt like we had a lot of similarities, but also, you know, different experiences that could be really valuable. So that, that was really the main reason for us teaming up together. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, let's take deeper into some of the technical area that Arise has been focusing on, as you kind of briefly mentioned throughout our conversation, which is model observability. And right now you're actually uh, writing a blog post series on ML observability. And uh, I guess that the main argument that you put it up is that you know model observability is the, the foundational platform that empowers team to continually deliver and improve results from the lab to production. Uh, so yeah, can can you provide sort of the core reasoning behind the statement and in your perspective, you know, what are some of the key components of a complete model observability platform? You know, the statement that we make, which is model observability is a foundational platform, is part of the core ML stack, is that's our fundamental belief. You don't deploy software into production without Datadog or, you know, New Relic or any way to understand, you know, is this stuff working or is it breaking? How do I troubleshoot this? And, you know, maybe five, you know, two, three years from now, no one's going to be doing this with models. No one's going to be deploying models into production and flying blind and not knowing why is this actually happening? Is this actually working even? And so the big divide today is really, you know, there's these people who are building these models in a very offline way. Data scientists build the model, very different environment. You know, you're pulling data, you're cleaning it in an offline way. You're building all of these different models to try to understand, you know, which one's actually going to perform the best. But when you actually have to operationalize that model and deploy it into production, you have to think about all of those things that you did in the offline way. How do you make them work in real time and in scale? All of those feature encoding pipelines, the transformations that you do, you know, how do you handle things like missing fields or imputations? And you know, once the model's actually, you, you've been able to deploy it, as maybe its own service, or maybe you're using one of the you know, MLOps platforms, but how do you even make sure that the thing that you deployed into production's working? It's performing the same as you thought when you had built it in the offline world. And so for us, it's really about, you're not gonna get to this point where you are continuously delivering and ML is an active part of your stack if you're not treating it like an engineering discipline. You can't just treat machine learning like it's some team there doing research. You have to treat it like an engineering discipline. You are trying to release it into products and deploy it into the real world, which means it's not done after you build the model. It's done when it's actually in the real world. And so how do you build this feedback loop so that you're you know, you're able to you know, validate quickly, okay, this is good to go. Let's deploy it. Once it's in production, it's working okay. Oh no, it's not working okay. What do I need to do to go improve it? How do I retrain it? How do I, you know, understand where it's gone wrong? That feedback loop is critical to knowing if your models are actually going to work in production as expected. So that's really the reasoning behind the statement is you can't just treat machine learning as just this research team 
and then expect it to deliver results for your company unless you actually treat it as an engineering discipline. And so the key components of having this observability platform is, you know, do you have all of the tools to analyze the performance of your model in production the same way that you can analyze it in an offline way? Do you have things like monitoring and capturing monitoring and alerting so that you can capture things like data quality issues, performance issues, distribution changes in your data. And then also, you know, having tools to be able to troubleshoot and explain when, when things aren't going well. Key part of why tools like Datadog and I'd say, you know, Splunk and New Relic are really successful is they're not only red light, green light, something's gone wrong. They actually help you understand how do I fix it? And so that's a part of what we're focused on is, can you actually learn how to fix your models and how to create that feedback loop? So everything you're putting into production becomes useful to know how to improve your model in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for drawing that picture and emphasizing the importance of treating ML as an engineering discipline. Yeah, and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing some of your future kind of continuing that series on with this different component of the observability platform. I guess kind of related to the little tooling for uh, ML engineering, like last year, you, you wrote an excellent series on ML infrastructure tools that cover everything from data preparation to uh, model building to model validation and, and model serving. From doing such depth exploration of this different tooling ecosystem, what is your verdict for you know, this landscape in the upcoming two to three years? That's a great question. <laughs> Everything's, you know, it's, it's kind of an exciting space right now, I'd say, the ML infrastructure base, because it's almost like you have all of these platforms that people, you know, like your GitHub and the Datadogs and the PagerDuty, everyone's now used to these. But it took us 20 years to maybe define this like amazing software stack. And now we're doing it all over again for machine learning. So everything from what is the best tool that you should use for data prep all the way down to what should you use for observability. And so the tools in the last maybe uh, five years or so have been really focused on you know, data prep and building models. I think in the next two to three years, we're going to see a lot more focus on you know, what they're calling ML ops, which is how do you take all of these, you, know, you now have the tools to build these models. So you know, first people needed good data. So you have all these tools to first get good data. Then you have tools to actually help you build models. But there's going to be this, you know, there's there's already, I think, a lot of tools coming out to actually help you now operationalize those models and actually put them in the real world and make them successful. So I think we're going to see a lot of focus in the next two to three years on tools that actually help you deploy and bring models into the real world as opposed to just building them. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think another trend that we're going to see is in the last five, six years, a lot of the platforms all have been very end-to-end. You know, the ones that you hear about, the H2Os, the data IQs, uh, data robot, you know, these end-to-end platforms, I think that, you know, there's definitely use cases for them. You know, we, we see people kind of, you know, sometimes actually it's it's maybe some of the less technical folks that we see actually using tools like data robot. But in the early days, you have these tools that will help you do everything. And maybe it's not, you know, the most flexible of tools or don't give you that much configurability, but they help you go from A to Z. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, it's, it's kind of an early innings. So people are kind of gravitating towards, give me something that'll help me do the whole gamut of things. But as people start to get more and more, you know, specialized and want more configurability, some of these more vertical focused platforms that focus on one specific function or persona, you know, I think that the same thing has happened with software. And so we're going to see here today, we see things like Tekton, for example, which is focused just on the feature store. You see weights and biases, which is focused mostly on experiment tracking. There's kind of these vertical solutions, algorithmia, very focused on model serving. And so I think that you're going to see more and more of these verticalized solutions starting to be more of the go-to for developer teams, as opposed to these big end-to-end platforms that maybe um, had a lot of success in the last five to six years. So those are my two predictions, more ML ops and more uh, vertical solutions. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for providing those great insights. Let's take off your engineering hat and put on your father hat. Finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. What were some of the challenges that you have overcome to find those early customers? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, the first thing that you know, you're trying to do is kind of figure out who has these pain points that you're building towards. You, know, you might, as a founder, have faced these pain points yourself. But who's going to be that core community that really identifies with that pain point as well? And so you want to find these, you know, we call them design partners or lighthouse customers, but they're people that feel the pain point so much that they're willing to try an early product. Because, you know, when you first start building a product, you might not have everything. And so you want to find these people that feel that pain point so deeply that you can solve maybe that one core pain point for them and do that really well, that they forget about all the things that you don't have. You know, you don't have things like maybe in the early days, like super fancy, like dashboarding tools and filters and team management and all of these things, but really, really have that core pain point that you can solve for them and is able to unblock them as a customer. And so I think the, the first challenge as a founder is how do you find these design partners that you can use to kind of ground yourself, build a product that solves their core pain point really, really well, and, and use those insights to kind of build a moat around your product. And so that's, I think, one of the things as, as a founder, you're, you're spending a lot of time doing is kind of nailing those those use cases. So finding those lighthouse customers and then nailing those use cases. And a lot of that is just hustle. You got to go out, talk to as many people as you possibly can, make sure that you have you know, material and, and mocks or even product that's built that can they can try out and play with. But a lot of hustle just to try to find the, the design partners itself. Doing things that don't scale. Exactly. Hiring is another critical responsibility of any early stage startup founder. What were some of the valuable lessons you learned to attract the right people who are excited about a rise mission? Great question. <laughs> That's going to be a, a continuous. I think you know it's never really done. You're always kind of bringing on exciting, exciting people who who are interested about the mission and, and what we're building. And for us, you know, one valuable lesson that I've learned along the way is there's people who 
are really, really kind of excited about the space. And those people are, are amazing. And then there's also people who are you know, interested in learning about the space and learning about machine learning and learning about kind of how do you make these tools that the next, develop, next set of developers will, will be using. And so I think trying to, I guess, reach out to your network and, and kind of speak about the pain points that you, know, you experience and trying to get them to understand kind of what the pain points that you're trying to solve really are is, is sort of you know, your constant job as a founder. You're going to constantly be talking to people and trying to you know, convince them about what the focus of the company is, what the mission is, you know, seeing the bigger picture. For us, we're actually a pretty Cal-heavy team. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people that have ended up joining us have actually, you know, recruiting from Berkeley has actually been a really big success for us. Mm-hmm. So maybe trying to find a pocket of people who are excited about your mission maybe have worked in it or are interested in learning about the space is one way to, to get started. Absolutely. Leverage of the person network. And so, so we talk about sort of interfacing with your clients, interfacing with potential employees. And the last group that I want you to really touch by on is uh, investors. So Arise has received investment from venture capital firms such as Foundation Capital and Trinity Ventures. What advice could you give to founders who are currently in the process to find the right investors for the companies? You know, I'd say that um, uh, join YC. <laughs> you know, YC actually goes through a really good process of kind of explaining, you know, how to raise money, um, how to build a product, iterate quickly, get customers, show traction to actually raise funding, show that there is, you know, big enough market for for your product. There's no way I'm going to do justice to the fundraising process in in five minutes or so, but I'd say that the best things you can do as especially a first-time founder, I'd say, is join a bootcamp of YC. They'll give you a lot of people who have already raised money who will be, you know, kind of a call away to be able to explain to you how should you handle this situation, how should you navigate it, how should your pitch deck look like. And those advice and insights when you're actually in the process is super invaluable. Yeah, having that credibility is definitely very rewarding. So finally, I want to kind of end the main conversation about interview on a, on a personal note. So a couple of years ago, you and your brother participated in The Amazing Race, which is a famous American adventure a reality TV show where participants race around the world. What were some of the memorable stories that you would like to share? And, and I guess like more relevant to the audience, like how is participating in the race similar to running a startup? Yeah. <laughs> So that's a great question. Um, so yeah, a couple of years ago, actually, when I was at Uber, I, I ended up being on The Amazing Race season 32. It was once in a lifetime experience. My brother and I auditioned for it, went to an open casting call and auditioned for it. And we ended up getting casted. You know, we went through a bunch of hoopla, like finals process and, and casting process, but we ended up going on the show. And you know, during the filming of the show, you know, it's, you can't really prepare too much for it. You are on the ground and you go to a clue box, you see a clue and you have to perform the challenge. And you, know, you can do some preparation, things like being fit, knowing geography, you know, maybe knowing a couple of languages, but a lot of it is quick decision-making on the road and being able to trust your teammate to make decisions. So an example is, you know, every time we would, pick a challenge, you know, you, you could pick which one you wanted to do. And 
we would always kind of look at each other's strengths and weaknesses and decide, okay, this one's the best suited for us versus the other one. And there's a lot of commonalities between that and running a race. You have to think about, you know, what's your, what's your company's strengths? What is your team's strengths? How can you tackle this problem in a way that, you know, maybe no one else can really do because of your experiences, your background, you end up making quick decisions. It's, it's kind of all about being able to hustle and execute and not being scared, <laughs> kind of, you know, not being afraid of failing. That's something that you can, you can just, you don't even think about. You just kind of want to keep going and keep pushing and hustling and just try to give it your best. And I think that kind of mentality of it's going to be a, a crazy ride or a crazy adventure and you just kind of go through it is something that's common between a reality TV show and running, running a startup. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great analogy and uh, the uncertainty mostly. Okay, so part of this part of conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm just going to ask you three or five questions. You can just give very quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the machine learning universe whose work you admire. I admire Reddit Abebe. I think that she's doing really amazing work. Timnit Gebru, um, I think she's doing really amazing work. And then also my PhD advisor, Serge Balonji, who works on computer vision research and is a professor at Cornell. I think his group's doing incredible work. Number two, name one book that you could recommend for people to develop a better uh, product method. That's a great question. I really liked the book, The Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. I thought that there's a lot of challenging times of building a startup. And so, you know, people always talk about the good parts. What was a success? What was a milestone? But they don't talk about what was the really time you had to make a really tough decision. And if you didn't make it, you know, what would have happened? And so I think that book was really interesting way to think about how to make decisions. And finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the aspiring machine engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I'd say this is a really exciting space. This area in in software engineering and machine learning is going to be innovating in the next decade. It's a great space to get your foot in now. And I'd say for especially people who you know maybe are you know, underrepresented or minorities who are getting into machine learning, to kind of seek mentors, seek people who will be their tribe. And by being a part of the space, they're kind of changing the face of the field. So to stay through with it. Yeah, fabulous. So Apana, I really enjoy our conversation, learning about your research at Berkeley, your reward experiment building system at Uber, your brief stint at Cornell, your town going through YC, the state of ML infrastructure tooling, and some of the amazing work that your team at Arise is doing with regard to motor observability, as well as various critical lessons for early startup founder. And I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to, uh, you know, check out some of those great resources that you we, we talk about during the show and, and reach out and learn more about you and Arise if they're interested. So, so yeah, Pana, I appreciate you spending time this morning with me. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Awesome. Thanks so much for inviting me. Great, great talking to you, James. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast. 
and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.